What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, September 10th. Man, can't believe it. September 10th already. Shout out to Antonio for taking over at the wheel last week. He did an excellent job. Just listened to the episode yesterday. I thought he did an amazing job. So Antonio, thank you so much for uh, taking over, man. Really appreciate that. Also, shout out to uh, Angela Baltes. I don't know if you listen or not, but word on the street is that you just had a baby. Congratulations. Uh, super excited for you. Super happy for you. Hopefully you guys got a chance to tune into the episode that was released today with Max Frenzel. He's a physicist. He has PhD studying like quantum information, something or other, some amazing stuff. Uh, turned AI researcher. So we had an opportunity to chat about a wide number of things. He's also uh, he's also a um, this like AI research in, in this like generative music type of space. It's really interesting, but he's also an author. He wrote a book called... Um, the book is called Time Off, and it's all about cultivating your rest ethic and the importance of having rest built into your uh, daily life. So I think it is a, a damn good episode. We recorded this back in February, and in February, I was uh, extremely heavily burnt out. So uh, you can hear a very stressed out Harpreet in that episode if you want to see what that sounds like. Uh, speaking of Antonio, there he is. Antonio, you just missed the uh, huge shout out I did to you for uh, for taking over last week. Thank you, man. Really appreciate that. Appreciate Thank all you. That all the help and then having you you know just crush it man my favorite happy hour episodes seem to be the ones where i'm not at the uh, at the wheel so i might have to make this happen <laughs> i might have to make this happen uh, again um but again man thank you so much appreciate that uh what else what other news do i have oh yeah i just completed my first week at comet this week that was pretty awesome shout out to austin austin's in the building man speaking of like okay so i started how does about- it feel to be at a new job Oh, it's great, man. Like, I mean, this is, uh, it's exactly what I want to be doing. I think it aligns well with what I'm all about and where I'm trying to take my career. And then just, it's just a lot of things just kind of come together in this role. So uh, happy to step into something that um, makes me extremely satisfied. A bunch of my mentees actually got jobs in the last week or two. There's like six of them that, that got jobs. So shout out to all you guys who are leveling up. I just started a job. I'm wondering. Do you guys have any advice for somebody on how they can ensure that they crush it in the first 30 days? I'd love to hear some advice. Uh, I guess we could start with that. Let's start with Tom. Let's go to Antonio after that. Uh, one word answer, Python. Always up your Python skills. <laughs> yes, Python skills. Was that a laugh track that you just played or was that an actual just people laughing in the background? That's just people laughing in the background. That's okay. why I'm muting a lot. <laughs> Yes, Python, up your Python skill, especially if you're a data scientist, 100% agree. Uh, Antonio, what about you? I'm starting a new job as well. That's my last day of Verizon. So oh, I'm probably going to need some advice to thank you. But I don't know. I think what my, my, my last director, when I started Verizon, I asked him, what, how can I be successful the first 30 days? He's like, I don't expect you to be doing anything the first uh, six months, man, let alone the first 30 days, you know, by the time you get set up and everything, it takes time. Um, but yeah, I'm going with a mentality, just be confident, be myself. And, uh, you know, like today was, since it was my last day of Verizon, all, all of the people are like, you know, like saying bye and stuff. Nobody's saying like, oh, you know, I mean, everybody, like we've worked on some project and stuff, but people remember like the jokes, they remember the fun times how you made them feel as especially like the data science, data analyst. Um, if I always kind of like people are giving me that feedback, like you always made us feel like our project is in good hands, you know, 
even though I've messed it up many times. I'm like, hey, yeah, of course we can do this, you know. So it's been that kind of stuff. So um, I'm excited to be starting in the journey as well alongside with you. I like that, man. Maintain like a good positive attitude. Have a good time. Make sure your code. Yes, sir. Uh, I guess let's go to Austin for some advice that I, you know it's it's weird because you know I report <laughs> report to Austin, so let's see what advice yeah. you have to say. non-specific <laughs> advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, you need to get in the code. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, for me, I think the most valuable thing um, it's like I think just taking taking an interest, being curious, asking asking questions, like sort of being present in that way. Um, it is a really important thing because I think one of the things that um, either hiring managers or, or your team is like, they're in the the sort of work every day and they start to take things for granted that um, they assume that like everyone knows. And when you're brand new, um, a lot of those things definitely, you can't take those for granted. So I think it's, it's really like a huge thing is just being curious, asking good questions, um, you know, finding the right people to talk to and then just, just soaking what you can in from them. and and that should be enough. Like if anyone's really asking you to do like a whole lot more than that, then I think they're have unrealistic expectations. But I really think like the, the questions and the curiosity is what really helped me get oriented at Comet and sort of realize what we were doing and where we were headed. And um, that's, that sort of helps, I think, in the, the medium to long term, um, as opposed to trying to like overdo it in the short term. Um, I, think, I think that's sort of the key for, for the first couple of weeks or so, at least even if, if not more. Great tips. Thank you very much, Austin. Also, shout out to a couple of people I ain't seen in a very, very long time. Wico, what's going on, man? Good to see you again. Carlos in the house. Carlos must have heard all the NFT talk we've been having over the last month. Where were you during during that time, man? We really, uh, really would have liked to have you there. So let's let's hear from you, Carlos. Uh, any tips? Let's go to Carlos now for Carlos Serge, because Serge got a good comment here in the chat. But any tips on, uh, you know, for people who are starting a new job on how to, you know, just just crush it in the first 30 days. Yeah, it was NFT talks. It's exactly why I'm here. <laughs> but um, you know, actually I'm only doing my job October first coming up. So I'm gonna be doing entrepreneurship stuff. Oh damn. Congratulations, I, man. I have the same advice. I need that advice. <laughs> what should I do to really impress clients if we're trying to meet them? But um I think to answer the question. Um just do all the little things. So like when I first started in consulting, I noticed like I would go to a lot of meetings that no one took notes at, and they were highly technical meetings. And I was like, oh, if no one's going to take notes, I guess I will take like insanely good notes and email them out. And I'll just run all of the PowerPoints and run all the note taking, do all of the boring admin stuff. Because when you do that, you'll start being the person who knows most about what you're supposed to be doing. And everyone's going to go to you and just be like, hey, like, how can I best contribute? Because I kind of forgot I wasn't paying attention. Whatever, nothing's happened. And just being the person who does a little extra things, people will call you up really quickly to do the important things. So I would get pulled into proposals like way sooner than other people at my level, getting tasks like way more stuff, um, way more high value stuff. So do a little things be memorable. Thank you very much, Carlos. After uh, Carlos, let's go to let's go to Serge and then Monica just sharing advice, general advice on how to just crush it in the first thirty days. Then after that. I'm just going to go to Russell for a question on, on NFTs or crypto. Cause you've been having a bunch of those questions. I think Carlos is, uh, Carlos is here. We don't get him very often. So Serge, go for it. Well, I, I think, uh, it's good to start like, uh, you know, like, uh, with fire yeah. <laughs> because I think the notion is that you should start like, uh, 
take it easy, kind of soak it in, like get to know everybody. And, and you know, it, it, it takes a while to get you truly onboarded, but I think it's important to figure out what are the biggest challenges in the organization as soon as possible. Um, and then think of all the crazy ways to fix them. Uh, and, and a lot of people along the way will tell you things like, no, nobody's figured this one out or it's, it's not a big deal. We've, we're, we're going around it, you know, figure out other ways around it. And, uh, and that outside of the box thinking over time, you have less and less of it because you just become kind of, you know, it, it becomes like part of the, the organizational culture and structure that you kind of deal with it in the way the organization deals with it. But early on, you have all these these ideas, and I'm saying it's it's best to kind of you know get on with it as soon as possible and and challenge the system before it you know you become part of it a little bit. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I mean like every organization I've been in in the first few months, I remember that of all this. But why? But why do you do it this way? And it's important to speak out because you know it they they you. They start to see the reasons why they hired you to begin with. And also you might hit something, some home runs early on that are not only memorable to others, but they also kind of set like a, a foundation for what you're going to do moving forward. Absolutely amazing advice. Thank you so much, Serge. Um, let's go to Monica. Then after Monica, we'll go to uh we'll go to Russell for some crazy NFT question. I know you'll have a good one. <laughs> uh, by the way, if anybody has questions, whether you're watching on Twitch or on YouTube or on LinkedIn Live, uh, I see you guys. Just go ahead and drop your comment right there in the chat or your question right there in the chat. Make sure I'll get to you. Hey, I just got to acknowledge before Monica speaks that her new do is freaking awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Wait, did you actually cut your hair out? It looked like it was tied back. I did. Back. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I cut nice. it and dyed it back to red um so i did i did the whole color spectrum and now i'm back to red so <laughs> thank you um these are great these are great great tips um also it seems like everybody has uh, new jobs lately i also have a new job um not even two months in Ooh. so uh the asking the questions the but why questions are are the best and i'm already starting to kind of like be absorbed in it and like everything's now more normal. So the, but why questions are kind of fading away. So get those out as fast as you can, especially if you're in a high pace environment, you're going to be absorbed super, super quickly. Um, another thing that I've um, found helpful is not only reach out to your team members and have like coffee chats, um, get to know them as well, but reach outside of your direct department or your direct organization that you're working with to get a perspective of like, your company as a whole or like an outside perspective of your department and how you can help others within the company. And um, that's somewhere where you can really uh, help the company as a whole. Thank you very much, Monica. Appreciate that. Great tips. Um, yeah. I mean, like this is the first time I've worked at a company that's, you know, kind of small. There's like, I think 40 something people at Comet. When I was at Bold, that was like 300 people, 330 people. So that was like the smallest up until then. So now it's, it's cool to be in a smaller organization. I think it gives more of an opportunity to create these kind of relationships that you're talking about. Uh, Eric Sims had to bounce, but he left some great tips in the chat. I'm just going to read them. Eric said he started a new job about 100 days ago. 
And his boss told him that in the first 30 days, he should focus on three things. One, establish strong relationships with my key stakeholders and figure out who they actually are. Two, figure out how to actually find the data. And three, learn what levers can be used to move the KPIs. Great, great tips. Uh, so Greg, good to see you again. So Greg and Russell, you guys always have some amazing NFT questions and you're lucky because Carlos is here. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, let Carlos take those questions on. But Carlos is here, unmuted as well. Do you have any questions or comments or are you just waiting for the question from uh, Russell? Yes, All right, go for Russell. Thank you. Evening, everybody. Uh, just before I get on to the NFT stuff, one quick comment about the starting a new job. Uh, it may be a, a no-brainer, but I think it's important to, to not be an ass in a new job, you know, especially if you're triggered easily by things, if things are done a different way. Just kind of let it flow. Come back and pick it up later on. Soak up everything like a sponge and try and, you know, if you if you receive negativity, transfer it into positivity and put it back out there. Uh, I think that's a, a great way to start a new job. Great tip, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the the NFT and, and the crypto stuff, we've had a lot of conversations recently about NFTs, but if I can put to, to Carlos firstly um, about crypto, I, I posted um, something earlier today about MasterCard buying or acquiring a, a, a crypto company called CypherTrace and put it out there that this is one of the first big financial organizations I'm aware of that have invested in, in the crypto market, really. Uh, and then went on to extrapolate from that, you know, what is the likelihood that crypto can become a more dominant currency, you know, a competing currency with um, orthodox currencies? Uh, and then further asked, you know, would people be happy to be paid in crypto? So I mixed a whole lot of stuff in a, in a single post. It was perhaps a little confusing, uh, but really interested on uh, uh, Carlos's take. He's already put some great comments back on the post in the first instance, uh, but if he's... Uh, if he's able okay. to, to elaborate on that now, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, so um, Twitter owns Square, uh, with, and I think they also own Cash App. I think the fintech companies have gotten really into you know, making crypto available uh, within their moat, which is important to say. I think banks are a natural extension of that. They want to you know, moat as much of that activity as possible. And to that extent, Visa, which I think, you know, I think, they're, you know, Visa, MasterCard, they're all related to these other fintech companies like Zelle, um, Venmo, which is owned by PayPal. I mean, they're all connected, right? So I think it's weird to say like MasterCard or Visa's first versus like JP Morgan being first, because it's really all like so interconnected. But to your point, um, Visa got, was in the news for buying uh, CryptoPunk, which is one of the, not the original or first, but it's one of the big original NFTs. They spent about $150,000 on it. Um, other companies doing this, um, Budweiser just bought beer.eth, which is like a Ethereum name service address. They paid a bunch of money for that. So I think we're seeing like broader, just a more broader comment of like big companies are getting in the space. Um, so one thing to bring up too is like, you know, why are these companies making these acquisitions? It's because they have regulatory reasons that they're not allowed to invest directly in crypto. So what do they do if they want Bitcoin exposure and they can't buy Bitcoin ETFs? They can buy a micro strategy. They can buy Tesla. So they can diversify their treasury, kind of in a derivative way, into this space. So I would say, like, I think a lot of institutions are deep in this space in like these roundabout ways, um, and it makes people not really aware that like this is not a hypothetical anymore. Like it's just happening before our eyes. Um, we're going to see more 
NFT, like NFT marketing. We're going to see more companies go around ICO and IPO laws by doing initial NFT offerings. Like, so yeah, I mean, I think the adoption's here. I don't think we're, I don't think it's appropriate to like have a conversation around like, is it going to come? It's like it's like it's you're it's here, man. It's like it's not Netscape anymore. We're deep in Google territory timeline wise. But then to your other point about like cryptocurrency competing, um, there's like a very deep economics answer that I won't give you, but I can point you to a paper that goes into it. Um, the shorter answer is, I think it's an inevitability that the globalization of certain assets will change how government functions. Like countries that have proven incapable of maintaining stable inflation, their citizens are just going to opt out. They're going to buy USDC on Ethereum in a completely decentralized way, unpermissioned way. If they can't buy that, they'll buy other stable coins. Like stable coins is the revolution first. So in terms of like competing, no, Ether and Bitcoin will never beat US dollars. That's actually, that would be kind of bad for them because they're not growing very much. Um, people who want like a stable way of living with a stable currency will just use assets of other countries and opt out of their governments in some way. Uh, that's going to be hugely destabilizing for governments that don't know how to run budgets. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's going to be like voting with your dollars, like literally. I mean, the number one country right now for cryptocurrency adoption is probably Vietnam. People don't really think of that. But Vietnam, you know, after Vietnam more, there's huge concerns about their currency stability. So anyway, I'm giving you the longer answer than I wanted. But I mean, people are going to opt out of their currencies for the best government cryptocurrencies in the most literal sense, like central bank created currencies, CD, CDDCs. Good economics lesson right there. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, any follow-up question to that? Uh, Russell or anybody else have questions on uh, NFTs or crypto at all? Definitely. Yeah, so, so, so the follow-up question is, is building upon the questions we've had in the, uh, in, in the last two or three sessions here talking about how NFTs are becoming more widespread, firstly, for the, for the more superficial element, which seems to be basically buying collectibles. Um, you know, some of these high-value art items or these uh, iterative um, pictures like, a, um, what is it, Bored Ape and, and, and other things like this. Uh, yeah, yeah. But we went on then to, to suggest, and I think it was Mark, uh, Mark Freeman's um, suggestion in the first instance. I don't think he's with us uh, today. But he suggested some two or three months back now that, uh, you know, could NFTs be used to, to validate the authenticity of a set of data or even a training model um, that could then be used in other ML uh, systems later and how we could use this. And I think Antonio then came up with another great option uh, last week um, saying basically it could be like a, a loyalty scheme, you know, like a, a diner's club card or a, or a grocery card that you wouldn't have a physical card, but you'd be given NFTs that you could buy with that would then predispose you or um, make available to you um, preferential um, rates, et cetera. So we were just kind of spitballing you know, all of the alternative options for NFTs. So I would be really interested to, to hear your take on that also, Carlos. Yeah, I guess I would push back on some of like, you, yeah, you can NFT anything that you want to be scarce and digital and like perfectly documented and also non-fungible. Like you could do all that stuff. But really, like if you wanted to timestamp data sets, um, I mean, I don't think you need NFTs to do that. There's like more complex, like directed acrylic graphs and like data ontology things that you can do. Um, there's, of course, like hashing. So you can just have like a data set that's stamped with a hash of all of its 
data, which would be insanely large um, or would seem to be a long process to do, but that would be like, let's say perfectly timestamp some data. Um, but I think, the, I think the question is more so like, like what's possible with NFTs? Um, NFTs will be like your identity on the internet. Um, that to me, they're probably most immediate new use. Um, so for example, like why would someone pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a board at Yacht Club? They might do that because it gets them access to the Discord server. And if people who spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a board ape know this is an exclusive social club and all they have to do is have that in their wallet, which then allows their wallet address to effectively serve as a login to like a server or login to a website, then they're paying to a private digital club, which gives them access to celebrities, basketball players, people who are well-connected. Um, so yeah, I mean, NFTs are definitely going to be a means of like, not just collectibles, but like there'll be a pass to clubs that you can resell. And that resellability is massive because now you can, you can join a lot more clubs if it might let you see, you might get sell it for profit. Like I would join way more clubs if I thought I'd be able to like make a profit playing it, play to earn as the whole model uh, in the NFT gaming world. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can do that right now. Like there's an MMORPG called Treeverse. I bought way too much money of land in this digital game. It's fixed land. I'm one of the only people with a house. There's only 10,000 houses in the whole game. And I can flex my NFTs in this little world. And I know that whenever I'm bored of this game, I'll just sell and I'm definitely going to make profit. That's like a whole play to earn model there too um, with social clubs. We're, we're like financializing every human interaction, essentially, including ones on the internet. Um, I feel like I'm talking about it, it, You got to cut me off, bro. Yeah, no, no, that's good. I love it. I mean, it's just, it's like, you think about far off into the distant future once humans are able to say, let's say humans are able to upload their consciousness, whatever, into some virtual realm. Like these NFTs are going to be like the actual currency that you use in this type of environment. Just I'm thinking crazy thoughts way off in yeah. the distant future. Your social security number is probably safer as an NFT than it is as just a number that someone who knows can just call their bank and be you. Like, Let's go to uh, Greg, because I think Greg has a follow-up question here. Go for it. Yeah. Um, so thanks for the for this rundown, Carlos. I uh, Those are the things that I continue to listen to in, uh, over and over until I, I finally get it. One thing that's quite fairly easy for me to understand is how NFT can benefit folks like basketball players or celebrities, for example, right? where I can see a world, and correct me if I'm wrong, I can see a world where they own NFTs that they can pass on to their children in terms of inside of their wills, um, or while they're alive, they can benefit from uh, these digital um, assets to sell to the public uh, and have an added um, you know, streamline of, stream of, of revenue, right, using these NFTs. So when you think about the gig economy, the regular folks out there, we know, you know, notoriety or they're not known in the public, but they just want to find a way to earn a living. Um, what can they do to profit from NFT? How do they find out what to engage in uh, yeah. to earn a living using these NFTs? Um, do they need to be technical? Uh, what is no, the minimum? Don't. I got an example for you. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think you I think you brought up a really good point. So I'm gonna try to be brief. Um, being able to financialize anything is the fundamental thing to get. So like I can financialize my social network, 
because people who know me, I have some, and I have a, a quantifiable amount of clout, I guess. And I can make NFTs and people might buy them from me. And if I'm very famous, a lot of people will buy them from me. Um, so yeah, what do NFTs do for like people who don't have that? I would argue everybody has some amount of social network um, and can be financialized in some way, whether it be through um, no loss lotteries um, and like collective investment. Like there's lots of ways that people with very, very small social networks can turn those networks into value. Um, but to get directly to your gig economy question, um, we're financializing everything. Um, that's the main thing I bring up. So that means like small artists can, um, you know, turn their true fans into money. Um, but let's pretend or skip art and skip saying that people have a specific talent. How can people with like no particular talent or social network like use NFTs? There's a game called Axie Infinity and it is like the number one downloaded game in the Philippines because you can be moderately bad at it. All you do is have to make accounts and like play the game as it's, you're instructed to play. Your little Pokemon ripoff monsters will get better and then you can buy and sell your team. And people in the Philippines were earning $100 a week doing this game. Uh, and actually Infinity's revenue like skyrocketed. It was making like hundreds of millions a year. And like the amount of money moved, just like the volume of exchange. Um, people, I mean, like that's life-changing money. In a country, it's like, I don't know what the average median income is in the Philippines, but in Mexico, for example, the daily minimum wage is $7 per day. So it's, a, it's like the poorest people make seven dollars a day, and you can make hundreds a week off playing a video game on your phone. You're gonna do that, and that's something that makes NFT possible. It allows you to financialize anything, including like time. It's like a unit of time playing this game has a price, and that means lots of games that you used to pay to play the games. Now you can earn out of those games because people are happy to pay for that exchange of time. Like, hey, you grind my RuneScape character for an hour, and that like saves me an hour. I'd pay like five dollars for that because I want to hurry up and level up. So, the answer your question. I keep doing this after you have something down. <laughs> Good ones. Uh, Greg, do you also have another question? No, I think uh, um, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. So, because the way, the way I look at it is, it's kind of like um, somebody who wants to go into to commerce. Um, you know, you have a, a set of, you know, products you're good at manufacturing with your hands. And uh, you want to find a market to sell it and kind of like automate the contracts that you have between uh, yourself, your products and the people consuming it. So I see NFT as definitely um, a great vehicle for that. So which and for that reason, I'm uh, I'm continuously interested into this um, and, and time is definitely uh, um something that I need to, to to monitor to invest myself a little bit more in into it. So I appreciate your answer there. And I also owe you a follow-up, Carlos. So I'll reach out to you uh offline uh, uh to discuss more about about that. And I know you're you're working oh, yeah, on marketplace. Oh don't worry I won't sell that here for no worries. Um <laughs> but just to add something to your point about NFTs regularly but I was actually talking to one of our so I do public health consultants. And I was talking to someone on our account team, which is someone who like interfaces with our customers directly about like blockchain stuff. And they're asking me like, what's the future state that like our clients are like not really thinking about. And I was like, well, I think in the future we'll be able to like have health insurance companies that have deals with hospitals for like specific units of care. So like, for example, 
a sad to think, but like, you know, a stroke has this kind of aftercare for this many days. And there's like averages for the stuff that they're modeling. They would, they could NFT those units of care at a certain amount per year based on what the hospital knows it can do. Like it can handle this many stroke victims, this many of these per day. They would like mint units of care. And then in the marketplace, they would sell those units of care. And then people, insurance companies would effectively collect units of care based on their own analysis of their own, like people who have that insurance. So if I have Kaiser Permanente, they have my data, they'll study me and they'll try to essentially personalize and predict my care at the unit of care level. In which case, if they're wrong or whatever, they can sell those units of care secondary markets and hospitals can have a percent of revenue from secondary markets. And anyway, that's the future state that thinks probably less than 10 years away. It might be less than five years away. Carlos, drop a link to uh, to Marketplace, a CD, CDP protocol. Uh, oh, you printed it out. I appreciate that, bro. Yeah, of course, man. That's how I read everything. Um, Sign me up, man. I told you. I'm, I'm ready to invest, man. I, I got faith in you. Sign me up, man. 20 racks for you. Me too. For real. For real. Uh, I got a question for Greg, though, man. And by the way, if anybody has questions, whether you're on um, LinkedIn, Twitch, YouTube, like I said, I'm watching. Please do uh, drop your questions. I would love to love to, to have them. Greg, man, what the heck is quantum ML? Break this down for us at a high level, man. I'm, I'm really interested. I know you talked about quantum ML. Um, I believe it was in the podcast with uh, my good friend john crone um super data science podcast but w- what is this stuff you know give us a lowdown on this uh this is going to be my uh non-technical attempt at explaining what quantum ml is it's it's really uh speaks for itself right so it's bringing the m- mechanics of quantum physics to 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 machine learning um so Everything that you can think of that a classical computer does uh, with a bit, uh, you bring that, you convert it into uh, a a qubit to uh, increase or beef up uh, your processing capability. Um, So when you think about the different setups in the classical world that you could do in uh, quantum, uh, I mean, in machine learning, whether it's uh, support vector, linear regression, and things like that, um, you can take a qubit uh, and transform your variable inputs from a linear, uh, what do you say? Um, what do you say? So, so when you think about a classical system and you think about a linear regression and you take your inputs, and you transform that into an output. So your inputs in a classical computer becomes qubits in a quantum uh, world realm where you can design gates that uh, tells you how to make that computation to arrive at your output in a faster way. So the problem with quantum machine learning is that there's not really a clear advantage to what it can do simply because just because you make a model faster doesn't mean it's great, right? So they're still studying what they can do to claim an advantage for quantum machine learning. Um, And right now what they're doing is leveraging the speed of quantum machine learning with the accuracy of classical machine learning 
to arrive at greater achievements. So I'll give you a quick example. Um, now you have some new term devices that are taking, for example, um, a quantum system that can provide you with probability of uh, occurrences, uh, but will not be accurate until the classical computer reviews these probabilities, adjusts the weights, and ingest it back to the quantum uh, system for that quantum system to recalculate probabilities until and iterate like this until it arrives at a high confidence level probability. So when you have a classical machine learning or classical system beefed up with a quantum system, you can have this iteration done faster to arrive at your high probability uh, uh, outputs faster than, you know, say a classical can do it. So think about millions of variables uh, that you are, billions of data that you want to process to arrive at this. And I'd like to finish by thinking about the different, uh, uh, you know, use cases that you can think of out there. Um, think about drug discovery. Think about an airplane uh, uh, manufacturer who would like to simulate uh, the best way to design their wings or something like that, that ingest tons of data, who would like to uh, evaluate tons of designs to arrive at the best design ever that minimizes faults or defects, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the things that are happening right now uh, on the near-term side. But the long-term side is that uh, the way I see it is that you will only hear about, or you will hear uh, cloud service providers, for example, offering you something like um, CPU, um, GPU, QPU for quantum processing unit, and then TPU, right? So our tensor. So uh, it will only be uh, one of the uh, offerings that customers or consumers can switch back and forth with regards to their uh, business cases that they want to analyze. All right, a couple, couple of questions here. Like, I don't know anything about this, so if they're dumb questions, please forgive me. Can I just go to Best Buy and ask for a quantum computer? Will people look at me like I'm crazy if I do that? I think people will look at you like you're crazy. Um, so far, the way I understand it, it's very unstable, simply because the way uh, they're designed right now, like nobody knows what is the best design to build a quantum computer, put a quantum computer together where they can uh, eliminate noise uh, completely. Noise, what I mean by noise is when you think about a qubit, Think about of uh, uh, an electron uh, inside of a closed system. There are noise like vibrations, uh, other things happening in its environment. If it if it interferes with these electrons, uh, the calculation will be, uh, I'd say, uh, affected, and 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 you have what you call error. And the only thing they can do right now, knowing that they cannot fully eliminate noise. They come up with some algorithms to correct these errors. So uh, it's still an active research where you know you have multiple ways of designing a quantum computer. Uh, whether you want to use uh, photons, where you you want to use a trap ion, uh, you want to use a superconductor, 
it depends on it. So it's still like there's still uh, there's still some competing uh, uh, companies uh, who or researchers who are trying to find what is the best way of designing that. Once you arrive at the best way to design it, then you're going to have to focus on efficiency. How to how do you compact it into a smaller uh, uh, place, right? So I like to imagine it as one day you will have um, uh, the the same thing that happened to transistors in the classical computer. Hopefully, in the far future, the same thing will happen, right? Where you can design it in a small chip that will be stable, and then you know the better we get to, into it, the smaller they will get until you can no longer uh, design it uh, uh, that small, right? There's a size that you reach that is so small um, that is going to co- cause instability into the design. You will arrive at that too in the in the far future for, for quantum. So long story short, uh, right now what's happening is um, research into the hardware piece uh, that is still ongoing. Uh, but also you have a software that can simulate what a good quantum computer can be, right? So right now researchers are hopping on these simulations. So you have AWS brackets uh, that can offer you some um, uh, system softwares to kind of simulate what a quantum computer can do. So you can start beefing up your research and things like that. Uh, but there isn't a, you know, known hardware that is stable out there. I know Google, for example, the other day, they claimed that they have a quantum data center, uh, right? So, you know, to me, it's just a research center that's looking for the best way to design the hardware that will give you stability. Um, Will we ever have a phone that is beefed up with a quantum chip, uh, maybe, but to me, it's in the far future. Yeah, all that noise yeah, with too. those electrons and different multiple universes and stuff like that, right? Uh, go, on, go on, Andrew, go for it. Yeah, just to add on to that, you can't get one at Best Buy, but if you've got you know a billion dollars or so and you want to go up to Canada and talk to D-Wave, they uh, they might be able to hook you up. And it, it's interesting because um, for a project probably about a year ago, um, I'll put a link in the chat. You can actually go to IBM and sign up and play around with one of their quantum, quantum computer simulators and how you would have to adjust a program to work on a quantum computer. Um, I'll put that in the chat now. Uh, but as Greg was mentioning, you know, you have to keep these tr- tremendously cool. It's like almost at, at, zero, at actual zero Kelvin. So the interesting thing about it is that we're trying to exploit that quantum phenomena at that temperature, while at the same time on the silicon processors, as they get smaller, it's the quantum properties at that level, which are actually getting in the way of getting even smaller. So there's a little bit of interesting irony there. Um, and that we have, you know, we, you can stabilize a few qubits, but like not enough to meaningfully do anything, right? And so I think there's, I don't know, there was some, uh, there was some study out recently and, and to, to Greg's point, it was like mentioning like you had to get over a certain number of stable qubits that didn't have a certain level of error for us this to actually be useful, right? So it's just really fascinating, but the IBM quantum computer playing around with that and understanding how the qubits work is really, really fun. I so mean, the, it, the link you sent though is that 
summary of 12 AI aftermath scenarios from the future of life. So it might right. be a, a different uh, link. Greg, go for it. Go for it. Definitely respond to that. But somebody please tell me what the hell is a qubit? How is it different from a regular bit? Break that down for me. Qubit as a regular versus a regular bit. Um, again, I'll attempt, right? If I were to explain to a uh, uh, child, Greg, what is the purpose of quantum computing is or, just or to adult, accelerate. Adult, adult harp. Oh, adult harp. <laughs> <laughs> what is that purpose? What are we trying to achieve here? Um, simply said to me is we live in a universe of information and possibilities. And we lack the means to compute these possibilities and understand them in a, in a fast way. If you think about time, right? We may have some tools to perform these calculations, but they take forever, right? Who's going to live 10,000 years to wait for the response of a classical computer in a very complex problem, right? So they're trying to shorten that time to kind of evaluate these outputs, right? To shorten that time. Now, um, qubit versus bit, right? A bit can be somewhat um, like turning the light on and off, right? On is one, off is zero. Um, a, a qubit uh, can be both uh, one and zero. And um, you can influence where you want the value of that qubit to be by manipulating its angles. So a qubit is more of a sphere where a bit is more of a line like this. If it's pointing up, it's, it's that line, it's on. If it's pointing down, the light is, uh, uh, the, that bit is zero, uh, but the qubit can be both up or down and you can influence it by uh, uh, tweaking where you want that uh, uh, point, that, that thing to point. So if you, if you see my finger here and I'm moving inside of a sphere, so I'm uh, doing things to that ion or that photon or that qubit to influence where I want it to land. So if you're not measuring it, if you're not really looking at it, it could be either one or it could be either zero if you're not looking at it. You do something to it and then you measure it, it may end up here, it may end up here, it may go here. So all of these angles can be measured by exactly like a matrix, right? So you can read it as part zero, part one, re regards to its angles. And then I'll let you explain that a little bit better than I can, if you, if, if you will. But the way I understand it is you can manipulate it to make it adopt certain angles to arrive at a certain result. Say, for example, uh, you want to achieve 25% um, probability uh, uh, X plus 75% uh, uh, probability Y, you tweak it at a certain angle to arrive at some somewhere between zero and one, right? So um, therefore, if you think about a system where you have, um, one qubit, you have already uh, zero, 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 one possibilities. If you have two qubits, then you increase your possibilities by two raised to the n, n being how many qubits you put together. So your possibilities increase in terms of computation uh, capability. Okay. Um, about 
Hopefully that's I explained like, that, that well. That's like when, when you're talking about, you know, you see something that it's either one or zero. That's like the uh, uncertainty principle with some of that observer effect, right? Like that, that, that kind of thing going on. So because there's a part of this where they're, you know, talking about like the collapse of the wave function where there's, yeah, some, yeah. yeah, there's some fun algorithms that you can experiment with that. And I know some uh, game designers have used that to kind of develop uh, procedurally generated worlds and everything. So, but that's a great description, Greg. Fantastic. So the philosopher in me wants to know, is there such thing as quantum logic? Because isn't like, like information in terms of bits, like you're building logic gates. So I guess are there quantum gates now? Then quantum logic, does that make sense? And there's a couple of uh, questions coming in from LinkedIn that I'll get to uh, from, from Costa. But yeah, quantum logic, is that a thing? Like, like I'd love to learn more about that or quantum logic gates. So quantum logic gates, uh, I don't remember uh, visiting that subject too much, but when I hear uh, gate, to me, a gate is simply an instruction that you give to the qubit to perform. It's kind of like a mathematical function or a rotation, rotational instruction that you provide to that, to that qubit to perform, right? So uh, you can say, hey, if you started at that top angle here, once you arrive at the gate, I want you to do a flip, you know, towards the x-axis and rotate your angle by 45 degrees or something like that. That's what a gate does. And those are the mechanisms that the quantum system uses to manipulate the qubit to arrive at a certain result. So uh, really, you know, if when I think about it by explaining it this, this way, uh, you can think about that this is in fact a, a logic that you use because you can design it by different uh, gates until it arrive at the final measurement that you uh, where you can check if you arrive at that result. So if you think about a search algorithm, so that's why you have uh, uh, these uh, Grover search, for example, um, has claimed that uh, they can achieve uh, their search uh, um, logic faster than a classical uh, way because of the way they design their logical gates to arrive at that at that point. So um, uh, it's 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 quite uh, interesting uh, how they prove how faster they can arrive at that uh, expected value when you search into large amount of databases or you know uh, numbers. And uh, Grover search is one thing that you can uh, take a look at to find out more. But um, long story short. I do believe that those gates are simply instructions, set of instructions that uh, the <clears throat> qubits go through. And if you can think about it, these gates are uh, very linear where you have the initial state of these qubits and typically they are parallel uh, to each other and they move in parallel together, right? And each time you can arrive at a gate right next to each other. So each time they pass a gate, they do something. And they can be uh, uh, linked to each other, these qubits, through a phenom phenomena called entanglement. And I think somebody put it in there if you want to find out what entanglement means. Um, and um, as they go through these gates, they understand what they need to do based on the logic placed inside of these gates. 
until they arrive at a final result. So, um, and that, that's why you have uh, different things like um, quantum key distribution, where you have, uh, what do you call, um, the, the same thing that the uh, encryption technology use. Uh, you have quantum teleportation, where they can have uh, sending uh, a, a qubit to another uh, entity that is far away from the uh, other person sending that, that qubit. Um, and you have other uh, uh, business use cases that you can leverage uh, uh, qubits for. Thank you very much, Greg. Appreciate that. Yeah, that's uh, super fascinating. I looked it up on Google. Quantum logic is a thing. Uh, it's an entire Wikipedia page. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to, in the chat, put a link to um, another resource on like the building of uh, quantum logic gates. There's a little, actually, a really fun app you can play around to see how kind of they work. I'm going to put a link to that also in the chat. That'd be great. Thank you. Uh, there's a question coming in from LinkedIn that's kind of uh, connected to what we're talking about here uh, from Costub. One of the big leaps along with GPU computation was its implications on energy use. When we're evolving into quantum computing for QNNs, which I assume means quantum neural networks, quantum neural networks. Yeah. and the power they unlock, do we have some projection on the power implications on quantum processing? Interesting question. So the, the way I understand it, the power computation um, uh, for QNN, like the power of computation, like how it will be achieved, or is it, is it yeah. better? I guess the the power implications on quantum processing because I guess G, GPU was they they take a lot of energy right GPUs take take a lot of uh, energy to power do we have that same kind of issue with quantum computers I guess the question is we don't know simply because most of these things are just simulated on classically built computers right these classical computers we've designed quantum systems on them to perform uh, calculations uh, for a QNN. So um, I don't think we're there yet to understand what would be the energy consumption of these, uh, you know, uh, systems. But my guess is that uh, if I think about the hardware that it takes, like if you can Google right now the, the computer that Google used to achieve quantum supremacy. I mean, these things are huge, taking like a, a whole room. And I can tell you that it looks like it consumes a lot of power. So uh, like any technology, when it's designed, it's not designed at its optimal state. So maybe it will consume a lot of power at the beginning. And then uh, this will be one of the key uh, things that will be improved over time uh, when uh, you know researchers find more stability instead of the design. That's my take. I mean, I'm, I'm not too sure. Yeah, super interesting to think about, right? Like you, you mentioned right now, the quantum computer Google used to achieve quantum supremacy took up a whole room. To claim, yes. Yeah, right. To, they claim, took up a whole room. Imagine back in the days, how big a room it would take <laughs> to power this thing. And now it fits just right here. It's thin. It's like a quarter of an inch thick. And I think that's an overestimation, right? And, 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 in how many years? 30, 40 years, right? So who, who knows? 30, 40 years in the future, man, what wildness will be up to. I think it's uh, super fascinating to, to think about. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. I, I don't see any other questions coming in through the uh, chat, which is uh, which is all good. I, I mean, we had a I like this conversation. We're talking about uh, 
some fascinating topics, man. That's what the artist data science is all about, man. We don't even I, 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 I like the questions because it kind of tested whether I was paying attention in class or something <laughs> like that. But so talk to us, talk to us about the, the program you're working on. Like, are, is this like a, a, a graduate program in quantum computing? What's, what's this all about? Yeah, so I participated in a program uh, sponsored by IBM. And I've used, I mentioned AWS Bracket as one of the simulators of quantum systems. But also, there's also Qiskit, which is the system that I've used. And you can leverage it as an environment to bring in Python notebooks there and code uh, uh, using Python. And they have a quite uh, well um, uh, documented uh, package for uh, quantum system within Qiskit and uh, where you can learn how to uh, design systems uh, using Python. So I've, I've studied that or practiced it for a little bit. And uh, it was a two semester program. And then the third one was like a crammed one over the summer, which was an introduction to quantum machine learning. Um, I promise I will do a better job at explaining how quantum machine learning works, uh, but it's quite um, uh, fairly new at its infancy, but there's a lot of promise there. Uh, and, and, you know, we've performed some exercises and you pass the program once you reach certain uh, level uh, in, 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 inside of your labs or uh, exams that you take and things like that. Um, with that, the key is to continue to read and practice and learn more and things like that. One of the things I'm interested in, if anybody wants to take a look, there's uh, the package, Python package called Penny Lane. Uh, Penny Lane is a uh, uh, quite um, fascinating company that is uh, offering a package for building quantum machine learning uh, uh, systems. So uh, this one here is probably one that I will try or make an effort to visit to better understand how uh, quantum machine learning can offer an advantage over classical machine learning or how to build hybrid systems where both work together to optimize, uh, you know, a system. Uh, this is great. Like I'm looking at the website. It's got, got, you know, you can learn, got tutorials and all that stuff. Definitely look into this. Um, probably see if there's anybody that I can find on LinkedIn that can reach out to bring them onto the podcast. Cause I would love to talk about this a little bit more. So if you wouldn't mind, Greg, like just let me know some, some of the textbooks you're using so I can look at the authors and, and look them up and, you know, see if they'd be interested in coming onto the show. I think that'd be super, super uh, interesting. Just, you know, I, I like to expand my intellectual horizon. I like being interview an interviewer to ask dumb questions because it just, it, it's the best feeling to feel dumb in a uh, situation and walk out like, Oh my God, I, feel like I learned so much more. That's awesome. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, so doesn't look like there's any more questions, but real quick, I do want to give a shout out to, um, I've had a lot of help from the community in reviewing uh, this course that I'm launching. Shout out to uh, some of the community members who have been reviewing it and the leaders in the industry, such as Tom, Greg, Vin, uh, Mark, who have been reviewing the course that I'm creating, um, you know, putting, putting a lot of work into this, and I'm hoping it's going to provide benefit to people. Um, you know, the, the reception so far has been positive. Um, so hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully I could I could deliver something of, of value for you guys. Um, actually, there's another question coming in. Uh, I was about to shut it down, but Costa is asking a question. Does the nature of the computations inform a completely different way to approach data in general, or is it the same data 
but different processing style. We're still figuring out what ML ops looks like. I'm wondering what that looks like with quantum involved. A deep question, man. Very interesting. What do you think? What do you guys think? Could you could you read that again? Yeah. Um, I'll also post it right here into the chat. Uh, does the nature of computations inform a completely different way to approach data in general? Or is it the same data but different processing style? So like quantum quantum data, right? Uh, we're still trying to figure out what MLOps looks like. I'm wondering what that looks like with quantum involved. A heavy question. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it seems like some of the discussions uh, I've been hearing in this world are about really like translating some of our traditional data types and traditional programs into something that can then run on a quantum computer. So it's interesting to think about it. The data is not quantum native <laughs> in a way. And so what might that look like and when we might get there? Um, and if we ever will, because it, it might not make sense. I hear a lot about like potential futures of hybrid, like large quantum computers elsewhere, potentially available via the cloud, but like you're still mobile and whatnot because of the tremendous costs and space. Maybe not now, maybe in 100, 200 years, but in 50 years, it still makes sense to keep like traditional silicon processors on those sorts of things and just, you know, tie into the quantum network when you need that computing power. But that's a really interesting question. Like, when could we get to quantum native data? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think there's also when I was following the quantum machine learning um, program, one of the limitations or or difficulties was to take classical data or what I call classical data is kind of like a structured data uh, with with columns and rows and and transform each of these columns into a qubit. Uh, that transformation uh, is quite uh, difficult and you need practice to, and according to uh, my learnings too, is that the more you add columns, it scales with the number of qubits as well. So uh, designing a system with a large number of qubits may be a little bit uh, um, uh paralyzing or or um not not the best to manage so uh there's one thing uh that's that's one thing to 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 uh uh observe a little bit more in terms of how to make it a little bit easier um so if you think about uh the design of a system uh that is um physical like a, a physical uh uh unit and it 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 contains a certain amount of qubits in there. You may have uh, limitations uh, when it comes to processing a large amount of data that may require uh, an excessive amount of qubit to perform the computation that you need. So you, you, you're going to be limited there. Uh, where you can have a little bit more uh, flexibility is if you can uh, run that classical data into a system that can. Uh, convert this uh, classical data into quantum features that can scale automatically uh, based on the software or or things like that. But on the physical side, I think we're going to be very limited. Uh, question follow-up question from Coast up here. Context to the previous question. Uh, for example, 
testing and machine learning model monitoring needs versioned data state and a versioned model state? Is there another layer involved? Now we're talking about NFTing data sets and NFT models. So it, it, to me, that's like quantum and uh, NFTs combined there, but I'm just being facetious. <laughs> but uh, but um, yeah, it's, it's a good question. What do you guys think? It's okay to uh, to, to pass on it because these are deep questions. Uh, but these are questions. Just, just that, reading a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. These are questions that when I get somebody on the show uh, that's an expert in quantum machine learning, like I'm going to ask these questions because they're very good. Thank you, Kostab. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Don't know. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew's like, yeah, nope. Don't know either. Uh, great, great questions. NFTs are, are gone <laughs> for the day. Yeah, man. So this is this is just a testament to just, you know, the, the future is crazy. Things are going to happen that we cannot even anticipate. Um, you know, 20 years ago, if people would have been talking about all of us sitting together in rooms during a pandemic, talking about stuff, uh, nobody would have believed us. And, you know, we're talking about quantum computing, NFTs and things like that. Future is wild, man. Stay curious. Stay open-minded. Um, I'm a little curious, ahead. man. Yeah. Another layer involved is, is the person talking about another layer in the quantum realm, right? I'm assuming, is there another layer involved? Uh, can the person elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, is there it, another layer involved? Sounds to me like the leaning of the question is, in essence, quantum ML ops related type of thing, right? Like, do we need to, because, you know, if we have traditional computers, right, we don't, this this the bits aren't probabilistic, they just compute, right? So if a quantum computer was to fit a model, the bits are in a probabilistic state. Do we need to version control how those bits behaved when we train a model and fit a model, right? Does that, does that, I'm thinking that is where this person is going to because that's kind of what's bouncing around in my mind, um, but we're not entirely sure. Does that make sense? Like, can, can, does it, do we have to version control uh, qubit state when we are trying to reproduce a quantum machine learning model? Yeah, I think once you reach uh, a certain level of stability, um, the version control is probably going to happen in a classical world where you can register the angles that each qubit arrived at to arrive at the probability numbers. But, uh, and that's why I think people are designing new term devices uh, that are combining the power of a quantum uh, computing with a uh, classical computing, uh, like the example I took before. So you're uh, twisting and turning the qubits into certain angles until they arrive at a measurement that uh, is properly. Uh, arriving at the expected output. Think about uh, you're searching for that needle in the haystack. So you tweak it uh, and find that probability at 80%, for example, in your first iteration. Then you download these uh, angles of these qubits and pass it to a classical computer, uh, which in turn uh, performs some sort of uh, weight adjustment through back propagation, for example, and then passes those weights back to the uh, uh, quantum device to perform now with these weights 
you have, okay, now you're instructing this quantum system to change the angles of the gates or the instructions to increase that 80% probability in the output until you reach uh, a, a certain uh, version that you're satisfied with. And that version can now be, uh, I guess, stored in a classical world uh, and then move forward with that, right? So that's the way I understood it. Not sure if I've inserted the proper yeah, way. That, yeah, that sounds right. Because you would use the quantum computing to explore potential states. Yes. Right, quickly, which yes. is what you can't do. And classical computing, you know, certain issues, right? Like, um, of course, like the, the most obvious use of quantum computing is for cryptography, right? So like RSA, you know, if you're factoring primes, right? A quantum computing can do what would take a classical computer a million years and, you know, I don't know, like eight seconds, I'm pulling that out of my ass, but like something short like that. So you explore those possible states, but then once you find it, like once you find the key, you would store that in a classical computer. Same thing with like drug, drug discovery, right? You're exploring all the permutations of the features of the molecular structure. You find the right one, you save it. And uh, great questions, uh, great questions. And Coastup is happy with uh, with the responses. And and thanks you guys so much for uh, just being honest with the uh, with the unknown. Uh, Mark, man, what's going on? Good to good to have you here. Also, shout out to uh, people we haven't heard from in a while. Tor, good to see you, Tor. You're probably uh, sitting in some beautiful bar in the south of France. Serge, Anti, what's going on, my friends? Uh, yeah, Mark, uh, Mark missed uh, uh, Carlos. Yeah, we had Carlos back after, phew, man, I don't know how long. Um, it's a trip, man. Carlos was one of the OG ones, always at office hours from the get-go. Uh, and this is office hour number 49, which means in three weeks, it'll be one year of doing this thing, man. That is, uh, that is insane to me. One year straight of data science happy hours. Mark, man, how's it, how's it going, man? How's your week been? Man, it's been it's been going great, <clears throat> going great. Uh, Sarah's late a little bit. I'm, I'm like I said earlier. I don't know for this one or the Sunday one. I'm working on a podcast. Nice. Um, and so uh, inspired by you for sure. <laughs> but uh, we, we, me and my friend, just had like a whole like strategy session of like what does this podcast mean, and it went over, but it was like super fun and uh, gave me a lot of respect for the work you do. <laughs> I'm excited to hear, man. I'm excited to to. That tune in when this thing comes out if you want to share any more detail with us like what it's called when, when we can expect yeah, to see it we're we're uh we're still trying to come up with the name but essentially the idea is like it's not even data related it's like an outlet outside of data but uh, essentially it's like modeling vulnerable conversations and you know uh how to share uh various stories from different backgrounds and having these really great conversations recorded the vulnerable conversations is that a name of a podcast or is that the actual name of yours was about to be uh it's not even a name it's like literally we want to have vulnerable conversations ah, got you you know um idea we have was like called dear past self where like you know or lessons you'll tell your old self we don't like the name too much <laughs> right now oh, yeah. but essentially it's just like trying to think through like what's what's a brand what's a story how we launch um where are our goals um super fun stuff I'm excited. I'm excited to to see it. And also, I was giving a shout out to everybody who was checking out my uh, my my course, doing a review for it. Um, Mark is one of those folks who's so generously putting in his uh, time. Mark, Greg, Tom, Vin, Vince, giving me such incredible feedback. Um, you know, I want you guys to know you can keep it completely honest with me. If my course sucks, please let me know what I could do to improve it. Because uh, I'm trying to make this thing be the uh, best it could possibly be. 
Uh, Russell is asking, are we going for Hawaiian shirts to celebrate happy hour in three weeks in Winnipeg? It is, it's already like low sixties now. Uh, so I'm about to be switching to cashmere sweaters uh, in, in a week or two before I go into a full on sweatshirts. Shout out to Joe Reese and Matt Housley in the house. Uh, very happy to have you guys here. What's going on, man? Sorry for the tardy. No, no, it's all good, man. You, you missed out on a very interesting conversation on quantum computing. I wonder what. Oh, nice. I'm going to have to go back and watch that. <laughs> oh, man, there's some some interesting, interesting talks. Uh, and then also with NFTs and, and things like that. Um, I'll open it up for, for other questions. I don't see any questions coming in, any questions or comments that anybody want to uh, chime in, please do so. Matt, do you have any thoughts on quantum computing? Yeah, let's, let's hear it, man. It's, you sound very interested about that. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I know that in the late 90s, there were a lot of questions about whether coherence, enough coherence would ever be achieved to actually get something useful out of quantum computing. I mean, there's been so much progress since then that it seems plausible that we'll see something useful where the practical limits are. I don't know. I mean, will, will coherence ultimately be a limit where RSA algorithms will continue to work? We just lengthen the, the um, factors and, and we'll be okay? Or, or will that be something that um, that type of cryptography will com be completely broken? I think those remain open questions at this point. But yeah, over 20 years, a lot of things have changed in terms of the general outlook. I think that would be the most immediate use case for, for quantum computing is in the realm of cryptography. It seems yeah. to be the big motivation. I know that a lot of other algorithms have been developed to, to apply to other areas, but I haven't fully followed that conversation. No. You know what, what I think is uh, uh, interesting that, I, that, I, that I'm uh, interested to see is uh, nowadays when it comes to cryptography, uh, the world of cryptography is kind of uh, losing their mind right now because of uh, quantum computing making advancement especially with quantum key distributions. And they're now they're thinking, okay, uh, he or her who holds the power to quantum computers can now uh, crack the code, the hash code of crypto. And uh, now I think there are movements in the crypto world where they're trying to design, um, you know, the hash that is non-breakable by quantum computing. And I asked my question, well, why not leverage quantum computers to design the hash code of crypto? In this case, if a quantum computer designs that hash code, then quantum computer won't be able to break that hash code, right? So uh, it's quite a, a, an interesting uh, thing uh, to do. Uh, and we're talking about long key chains of numbers, like up in the 200, 500 uh, long. So, I'm uh, interested to see what's going to happen there, but uh, for now, there's a people are scared that you know if if you're China, you have uh, computation power through quantum computing, then uh, any cryptos can be hacked by this very powerful uh, uh, computation computational uh, power. So I'm uh, I'm curious to see how things will happen. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think there is a lot of impetus from the uh, national security space just because there is this computational arms race. Um, and I think that, that that's driving a lot of the discussion on quantum cryptography uh, outside, outside the commercial space. And then coming back to what Greg just mentioned on using quantum computing to create these keys. And that kind of ties a little bit back into our discussion on how data can be fundamentally different, because 
at that point, you're not working with RSA where you're trying to factor primes. You can actually, um, if you're transmitting a key and someone intercepts it, which in a traditional, with a traditional key, you would not know. But because of the nature of the quantum communication of the, of the key, it would be uh, interacted with. And if a quantum key is interacted with in transmission, it disentangles. And therefore, you would know when you receive it if it has been tampered with at all. And so there's a lot of you know, very interesting use cases there. And that's fundamentally a very different way that the data operates. I'd love to get Matt's perspective on this uh, question that, that we were discussing a little bit earlier, because it's a really interesting question that came in from LinkedIn. Uh, does the nature of computation inform a completely different approach to data in general? Or is it the same data, but different processing style? We're still figuring out what ML ops looks like. I'm wondering what that looks like with quantum involved. Some more context is that testing and ML model monitoring needs a versioned data state and a versioned model state. Is there something else, another layer involved once we start talking about quantum computing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, from my perspective, and I'm not an expert in this domain, <laughs> let's be clear, but the real challenge with quantum computing is that you're, you're so far outside the realm of like procedural thinking, the way we have been thinking about computation for the last, like, you know, since the beginning of computation, at least since the 19th century, really. And so you, you fundamentally have to think, rethink what you can do with these algorithms. Quantum computing can be very, very powerful, but you're very, very restricted in terms of the things that you can actually do. So you have to figure out how to like restate your problems in a fundamentally new way. And so I think that's the big challenge. And then the question is, can you then apply these new types of algorithms and these new types of processes to machine learning in a way that's going to be valuable in a way that solves problems faster than in a way that fundamentally gets work done a lot faster, like it does with factoring primes, for example. Yeah. And, um, for those of you guys interested more in just like the theory of computation, highly recommend checking out stuff from Stephen Wolfram. He's been on Lex Friedman's podcast a couple of times, just talk about the theory of computation, really interesting stuff. I definitely encourage everyone to check it out. You mentioned coherence and um, Russell also says that uh, apparently coherence is a big thing in quantum computing. So what, coherence, what the heck does that mean, man? Talk to us about that, somebody, anybody, at, go for it. <laughs> I, so, so fundamentally what you have to do is create these entangled, really complex entangled states. And um, as shows up in other places of, of where quantum mechanics becomes very important, like superfluid helium, for example, any kind of disturbance of that system, so like thermal disturbance can mess up that coherence. And as I understand it, this is something that's already taken into account in these algorithms to some extent. So there's a degree to which, and I'm not an expert on this either, but you could sort of resample and do the experiment many times and then get a reasonable answer out of it as long as the states aren't too disturbed. But fundamentally, like your bit length is limited by your ability to maintain these coherent states in the system. And that's the key challenge. And so I think uh, like physicists and researchers have pushed this much further than maybe people thought would be possible 20 years ago, but they still have a long, long way to go to like maintaining these entangled states over so many bits. Yeah, and if I can, if I can explain that in, in, you know, to, to little Greg, it's good to understand what entanglement means as well, right? So for me, my interpretation of entanglement is you take two electrons and you uh, have this initial energy state. 
So you have low energy, uh, high energy. And entanglement for me, it means if you want, uh, you know that if uh, electron one has energy level one, you want the other to be zero, uh, or you want them to be zero at the same time, you want to be them to be one and one at the same time, or you want it to be flipping one and zero or zero and one kind of thing. So they kind of, uh, when one changes, the other one changes, or if you want them to be the same. So uh, entanglement to me is kind of like, um, if you know the value of one, you know the value of the other automatically, right? Now, coherence means as you go through the uh, changes or gates uh, for these electrons, when you uh, push energy to these electrons, uh, they will move certain ways and they will maintain their stability. Decoherence happens when uh, it interacts with the external forces. When noise traverses these systems, then that uh, pair that you formed with these two electrons is no longer valid. This way, when you perform uh, uh, your, uh, you know, computations or when you perform your uh, uh, gates onto these electrons, then that expected result is no longer achieved. So that's why uh, I would advise you to look into uh, uh, the perfect um, uh, quantum system is one that meets the DiVincenzo's uh, rules. And one of the rules is uh, coherence, where when you perform a calculation through uh, that system, that the system is stable and noise isn't strong enough to break that entanglement that you formed with the with the with the electrons. I call them electrons because it's easier for me to kind of imagine what a qubit is. That's why I'm calling them electrons. They could be ions. They could be other things as well. But DiVincenzo's uh, rules are what researchers are going through right now to understand the criteria that is uh that it takes to have a stable quantum system awesome damn that's <laughs> some interesting stuff uh any anything to add to that uh not andrew anybody oh does not oh, that was a really nice explanation yeah. thank you greg that was awesome yeah. so yeah this looks like a cool resource well as well i haven't read this uh, technopedia article but i'll check that out too so yeah man physics is awesome physics is phenomenal i wish i was smart enough to, to study it i just kind of observe from the sidelines and uh pretend like i know what's going on uh but yeah awesome conversation uh thanks guys for for tuning in appreciate having all you guys here uh don't forget tune into the conversation i have with uh max frenzel we touch on quantum and and some stuff like that quantum information theory it's what he his phd in plus some other uh, physics related topic so definitely check that conversation out. We also talk about the importance of resting and you get to hear a very stressed out harp uh, share his woes with, with Max. Um, we recorded this back in, uh, back in February. It's when I recorded this episode with him. During that time, man, I was going through, uh, like, I had like eight or nine interviews in one month and like stressful as hell, baby wasn't sleeping. Uh, so I was like operating on like four hours of sleep. It was, it was madness. Um, Still operating on very minimal sleep because the baby's still crazy. Uh, but anyways, thank you guys for for hanging out. Uh, again, shout out to Antonio for taking care of last week's happy hour. 
if anybody in the community wants to take the wheels at a happy hour, wants to be host, let me know, man. I'd be happy to, uh, to, to take a break every now and then. So if anybody wants to host, let me know. Uh, definitely, you know, want to have you guys that have that opportunity. Uh, again, take care. Shout out to everybody who uh, helped review my course. I'm excited to launch it. And my friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>